0: Well, happy Sunday to all of you. Uh, when I was in high school, my beginning of my sophomore year, it started out just like any normal school year. You go to class for the first time. But then the second day, something interesting was happening. I was taking a biology class, a science biology class, and uh, the teacher didn't show up. And so they eventually got someone else to come into the, to the classroom. And then the next day, we had another substitute. And the next day, we had another substitute And come to find out on Friday of that week that our teacher, who was only there for the first day, quit her job and moved back to, with her family in some other state in the country. So that's an interesting start to the year. And so what they eventually did was they got this uh, older teacher, they had her come out of retirement, and she started teaching us biology, which is all well and fine, except she was very boring, and we all were failing. And the reason we were failing is because she was teaching stuff, I guess, but she wasn't teaching the stuff that we were actually being tested on. Like She wasn't actually following the textbook. And so that became a problem. Everyone was doing really bad. All of the parents involved were upset at the situation. And, uh, and we didn't know it was going to happen. And in this moment, we're like, how, how could this turn out to be a positive for any of us? Well, eventually, maybe about, don't know, nine, ten weeks into the school year when this was very clearly not working, they sent us all to this computer lab. And this was kind of like the early days of doing school online. And so basically what would happen is that we would like read all this stuff and then we would take these quizzes. But the quizzes you could keep retaking until you got a good enough score to pass. And so what we figured out was, is that you could kind of skim the material, just keep retaking the quizzes and get a good grade. And then there would be time left over. And so we found all these computers had these have this 2D bike racing dirt bike game. And so we started to do that and play the dirt bike game. And then we got really smart when the teacher, the guy who was like in the classroom sitting at his desk, when he would walk around the classroom, we would like hit a few buttons and would go back to like obviously we're doing work. After a while, it got pretty obvious what we were doing, and he stopped caring. He was like, just finish your work, and you know, get, and then you can do the games after. And it was amazing. Uh, we did not learn anything. We got great grades, and we played computer games all day. It was awesome for us. The parents, maybe not so much, but for the kids, it was amazing. Right? We had a situation that looked awful and ended up being better than a ten, or a ten, uh, someone in 10th grade could ask or imagine. And I say that because today, as we continue through the Gospel of John, we are going to see Jesus uh, answering a question about what is to come for you and for me. Or maybe I want to set it up this way by asking this question, right? How can God's kingdom, uh, how good can God's kingdom really be when life here can be so hard, right? One of the themes of the Gospel of Mark, the story of Jesus' life, is God's kingdom and how he is inviting us into it. The question, though, is how amazing is God's kingdom, is the kingdom that he is inviting us into, when life today is so difficult? And we know all this. I mean, it seems like every single week there is something else that happens in the news. There is something noteworthy that's depressing and tragic and sad. And so when we see all that is happening in life, and then we talk about this God who loves us and who has created this kingdom for us and that he's inviting us into it, it's really hard to see all those things and say, is it really worth it? But how good can it really be when this creation that you created is like it is today? That's the question that lies before us. And so if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 12. Uh, Mark chapter 12, if you don't, there's a black one around you. If you pull out one of those Bibles, you'll see this little name card. You can just put that to the side. Uh, we'll get that to that later. Um, but I invite you to turn and read with us. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, now we are in what is called Passion Week. This is the last week of Jesus' life. The last couple of weeks, we have seen how he has challenged the temple system in Jerusalem and the religious leaders. Uh, and they want to get him arrested. They want to have him killed for what he is doing because they want to know what the authority by which he has to do what he is doing. And so they're upset with what's going on. And then today he's going to be confronted again by another group of religious leaders, again, asking him another question, trying to stump him. And here's what he is going to say. Again, the question for us this morning is how can God's kingdom really be good when life can be so hard? And here's how we're going to see it. It says this in uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 18. says, uh, uh, we'll give you some pretext real quick. We're going to read about the Sadducees. I want to explain this. So this is going to be a little bit different this morning. I'm going to explain all the text first up front because there's some interesting information and then we're going to apply it at the end. As we read this, we are going to read today about the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were another group of religious leaders uh, in Jerusalem. This is the only exclusive encounter that Jesus has with the Sadducees in the Gospel of Mark. They were one of various sects in the religious Jewish tradition. Uh, They were one of the dominant traditions along with the Pharisees, but they also differed quite a bit. And so really quickly, a high level view here. Uh, the Sadducees, some of their differences between the Pharisees was they didn't believe in angels and demons. Uh, they pretty much only believed in free will and not God's sovereignty. Um, they only followed the written Torah, which was the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so they rejected the rest of the Hebrew writings of the writings and the prophets, which means they also rejected The afterlife. Uh, They they they, they denied the existence of angels, demons, and the afterlife because these things were taught exclusively in the latter parts of the Torah or of the Hebrew Bible and not in the beginning. They weren't really mentioned. And since they only followed the first five books, they didn't believe in these things. And so uh, this is who Jesus is confronted today. Now, side note, one other thing, the Sadducees were also highly involved in the temple and in the priesthood. Um, They were highly involved in the politics. And a lot of the high-ranking Jewish people of the day uh, might've found themselves as a part of that sect. And so when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, the Sadducees also fell apart pretty quickly after that. So that's who Jesus is going to be confronted with today. Again, we'll explain all the text, and then we'll apply it. Here's what it says. Mark chapter 12, verse 18. It says, Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him, which is Jesus, and questioned him. And here's what they said, verse 19, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind, but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, really quick, this is what's called a a leveret marriage, which is a, a lot different than our culture today. So I just want to explain what's happening here. So you and I can understand. Uh, Levirate marriage basically involves a widow, a childless widow, a woman whose husband dies. And the, the, the custom would be not just for Jewish people, but for a lot of ancient cultures. Even some cultures today still practice this. That if a childless widow dies, she will marry her, her, her husband's brother, if he has any. Now, she does this for one of two reasons, or for two reasons. One, uh, to ensure marriage and protection for the widow. Uh, Being remarried was a hard thing to do. A woman in ancient cultures had no rights, had no privileges, uh, and so it was a way to protect the women, but also to provide an heir for her dead husband so that the inheritance, if the family owned any land, that all of that could stay within the family. In a highly agricultural uh, culture, land was everything. And so what would happen is it would allow her to remarry. Uh, hopefully have children, which would help her in her old age. Is pretty much your, your retirement plan. Uh, crimes, to ensure crimes were dealt with legally, uh, she would also have to be married because everything went through the husband or the man of the household for most of human history. And so, again, what that basically means is that if you have no man in your life, you have very little legal standing. And so there was protections set up. Now, as much as we might say, yeah, that's not right. And so we're glad we've progressed in some ways. It's also helpful to know that this is also true for even America for much of our history, right? Because until fairly recently, if you were a woman, uh, you could not vote. You could not buy a house. You could not even get a line of credit if you did not have a man to do that through. And so this is how the ancient world worked. And so a levirate marriage kind of ensured that a childless widow would not be left out on her own. And so that was a custom. And so they're asking Jesus again this question, verse 19. Teacher, Moses wrote for us, so this is in the Torah, uh, <clears throat> that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind, but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. So knowing that, here's the question. There were seven brothers The first married a woman and dying left no offspring. The second also took her and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise, none of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, which they, of course, don't believe, but they think Jesus believes when they rise, whose wife will she be since the seven had married her right now? This is a great question. Like, can we just be real? Like, this is a really good question. What's going to happen? Now, what's interesting here is the Sadducees use what they think is a great question, and I think, I think we would think, well, that's actually interesting, like, what's going to happen to her, uh, to reject the absurdity of the resurrection. Right, because at the resurrection, this woman will have seven husbands. Right, they all resurrect together, which again also goes against the ideal of monogamy. So that's going to be a sticky situation. And so, Jesus, if you're right about this whole resurrection thing and this whole kingdom of God thing that people are going to be welcomed into, how is this going to work? Because what's happening here is that the Sadducees, even if they rejected it, uh, just like the Pharisees uh, believed, uh, I would submit, had the same ideas that if we're being honest about the afterlife, that you and I probably do as well, right? Because here's what we probably think, just practically speaking, if you were to think, what is heaven gonna be like? Or what is hell going to be like? Here's what we probably think. That heaven is, is, is like earth, it's functioning like earth, but it's different, right? It's, it's somewhere else. And hopefully it's just a little bit better. Like things go well. You know, you don't get frustrated. You don't get mad. Nobody's mean. And so that's what heaven is. And then hell, is just like Earth, but it's somewhere else, and it's uh, it's just worse, right? But it's but it's worse, and you don't want to be there. But uh, at least your friends might go there with you, and so you at least have them to hang out with, right? Like you might think of hell as like being stuck in a really bad job, but having really cool coworkers. Like you're miserable, but at least they help you get through the day in fact this is a very common thing I still remember one day when I was in middle school every summer my grandparents would take me and my brothers down to Florida all of our extended family lived there and it was always a lot of fun and we'd always stay like a week at our great aunt and uncle's house and they had a pool and we had some cousins that would sometimes come up with, um, with come up come up there we'd all hang out together for the week and it was awesome and uh, we'd swim all day then at night we'd like bring our Xboxes, and we'd play halo all night and uh, it was amazing it was it was Xbox, it was junk food, and it was body odor. Middle schoolers, paradise. (laughs) And so one of these evenings, it was super late, and so my cousin's mom came up and was mad at us because we were still, you know, talking. She's like, it's time for bed. And I guess this particular evening, I'll never forget, we must have been talking about, like, God, because, you know, my family grew up, we were followers of Jesus. His family, my cousin's family, atheists, not like militant, but just didn't believe in God at all. And so we're talking about these things. And so she's annoyed, and she comes up, and she says, listen, I don't know, I don't believe this Jesus stuff like you guys do. I'm probably going to go to hell, but all my friends are going to be there. Who knows what's going to happen? happen, go to bed, right? But, but functionally, right, hell's probably not the best place, but according to her, my friends are going to be there, and so we're going to get through it. In heaven, if we're being honest, we probably think kind of the opposite, right? There's no more pain. If I, I like my job. Uh, my dog will be there, and hopefully they'll talk to me, like we'll actually be able to talk to one another, like that'll be really cool. Um, my friends and family, and everyone's just going to be happy, and it's going to be great, Right? This is how we functionally think about heaven and hell. Now, to a degree, this makes sense, right? Because it's hard to imagine anything other than our current experience. And so we assume it's just going to be like this, but somewhat different, hopefully better for us. And so the question here is by this logic, right? If Jesus accepts the assumption that the life to come is pretty much an unbroken continuity with the present, then he's got a problem right, because he has to argue on traditional, on a technical grounds, right, if he's going to answer the question, that, well, I guess the wife would be the husband of the first man because she married him first, or he would have to concede to the Sadducees. Yeah, like, I don't know. This is a sticky situation. I'm not sure what's going to happen. And so they probably think that they have Jesus. And if you and I are honest, we probably think the same thing, right? What is he going to say? And so here's his response. Verse 24 says, Jesus spoke to them. Isn't this the reason why why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Now, here's what's interesting here. Um, uh, for Jesus, uh, Jesus says that they are in error. He says that they don't actually know the scriptures. Now, this is a big claim because this is their expertise. This is their life's work, is studying and knowing the scriptures. In actuality, they probably know it better than any of us here. Um, They don't just read the the Bible or the Torah. They memorized it. And so when you try to do your your Bible in a year plans, right? and you get to Leviticus, and by chapter three, you're like, done. Imagine not just reading it, but having it memorized. I mean, they knew this stuff. They knew they were at depth. It's all that they did, right? The one thing that they actually did know, if they didn't have a lot of other practical life skills, was the scriptures. It kind of makes me think too, like sometimes when I get together with pastors and, you know, ministry can be hard. It's an honor, but it can be difficult to walk through difficulties with people. And so sometimes people talking about, man, they just want to get another job and try something else out. And sometimes I'm like, yeah, that sounds great, bro, but we got no other skills. (laughs) Like what else am I going to do? I I don't know. So hopefully I'm decent at this, right? (laughs) And so when he says, you don't know the scriptures... Um, this is a radical thing. This would literally be like, for example, t- telling Michael Jordan, you don't know how to play basketball, or you don't know how to sell shoes. Right? That you, the, the most successful basketball player and shoe salesman in the history of humanity, I think he knows how to do that. Or this would be like telling Chick-fil-A they don't know how to make blessed chicken. <laughs> right? They know how to do these things. Right? So to be clear, they know the scriptures, Right? It's not that they don't know them. They, in fact, I would say that they know them better than any of us. What Jesus is saying is that they don't actually know the point of them. They know the chapters. They know the verse. They know the customs. They could spit out any question you have. If there's an answer for it, they would know it. But they're missing the point. In fact, here's what he goes on to say. He says this in verse 25. He says, For when they rise from the dead... They will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. In other words, what he is saying here is that the resurrected life is not about a prolonged earthly life that's a little bit better if you're in God's kingdom, but it's instead it's in a entirely new and different dimension. Again, they think similar but better. If you're married seven times, you're going to have to figure this out because life is kind of the same, but just a little bit different. But yet for Jesus, what he is saying here is that these earthly realities that you and I know, for example, marriage is the one they brought up, are insufficient to explain the life to come. It's an entirely different category, just like angels in heaven. Now, I don't know about you, I have no idea what it's like to be an angel in heaven, right? It's a completely different category or dimension than I am used to. It's Totally different. In fact, Scripture actually hints to this at a couple of times. One of the times it'll be on the screen in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, uh, 15 for, and starting in verse 40, the, the Apostle Paul was given a glimpse or a vision into heaven, and he's talking about the resurrection and the resurrected bodies and how are they and how they're going to be different. And I'm just going to read a couple of verses to talk about how it's altogether different than you and I can imagine. It says this in, in chapter 15, verse 40. It says there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. There is a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, and another of the stars. In fact, one star differs from another star in splendor. They are all different. Verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. He's talking about the differences between our earthly life and existence and God's kingdom. Verse 44, again, sown in a natural body, raised in a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now, what he's talking about here in chapter 15 is all about the resurrection of Jesus and all these sorts of things. His point is that what is to come and it is entirely different than what you and I are living in a part of now. So therefore, of course, it is hard to explain something that we have no concept of, right? It's like trying to tell a toddler the grandeur of a sunset on the Grand Canyon. Like they have no idea of really appreciating or knowing what that's like or trying to explain a tropical beach to someone who has only ever lived in the Arctic and has no uh, access to technology. Trying to explain the warmth and colors and all these, like they, they have no idea saying what you are talking about, right? It's going to be completely different. Now, that being said, this might sound good and all. The question, however, is where does Jesus base this idea that the resurrection is a real and is a different thing? Because one thing for him to say, well, it's going to be this way, but where does he base it so that they'll actually be able to understand what he's talking about? Where does this concept come from? Well, he continues. If you look back in Mark, uh, starting in verse 26, he then says this, it says, and as for the dead being raised, so the resurrection life that he's talking about, haven't you read in the book of Moses, which is the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am, a, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. In other words, what does Jesus do here? He does something extremely fascinating. He quotes from the Torah or from the Pentateuch, like the first five books of the Bible, which the Sadducees believed in. He pulls from Exodus chapter three, where Moses is confronted by God at the burning bush, where he's telling Moses to lead his people out of slavery into Egypt. Right? And so that's the story he's pulling from. And he talks about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who are essentially the beginning of the Israelites. You can read about this in Abraham, or sorry, in Genesis chapter 12, where God calls Abraham, says he's going to make him into a mighty nation, out of which God is going to bless the entire world, right? out of which the Messiah, Jesus, is going to come. And so what he says here is, like, you're missing it. Right? When God confronted Moses at the burning bush, what does he say? He says, he does not say, I was their God. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, but they're dead now, so now I'm your God. What does he say? He says, I am their God. Even in their earthly death, I continue to be their God. What Jesus is saying here is that God is not the God of the dead, but that he is the God of the living. And he's not using the rest of scripture to explain to him how the Sadducees should believe the writings and the prophets in all of the Hebrew Bibles. He's simply meeting them where they're at, taking what they believe to be true to show them that this is what God has meant all along. And so, what I want to do here before I apply this text, text is I want to point out something that, that has always fascinated me about Jesus. It's something that we easily miss. What we see happening here as Jesus confronts the Sadducees right where they are is this that Jesus always meets people where they are. Jesus always meets people where they are. What does Jesus not do What that you and I might think he's supposed to do, right? He doesn't argue with the Sadducees that they should accept all of the Hebrew Scriptures. And then the point throughout the other Hebrew Scriptures where it talks about, you know, God caring for those and and Sheol and, and God and the resurrection life that Jesus is talking about, all of these things. He doesn't do that, although he could. Instead, he meets them where they're at. He takes the Torah, the first five books alone, and uses that to show them the nature of God. And in fact, he actually does this all throughout Scripture. Let me give you a couple other quick examples. In John chapter 11 is the resurrection of Lazarus. You might be familiar with the story Lazarus. His friend has died, and he waits four days before bringing him, healing him, and bringing him back to life. Now, the question is, why does Jesus wait four days to resurrect Lazarus? Well, the text doesn't say this, and I'm sure there are probably multiple reasons that went into it, but one of the things that is likely is that the Jewish, the popular Jewish belief at the time was that when you died, the soul, your soul would hover over your body for three days, hoping to re-enter your body, and or your soul's kind of lost and confused, and after the third day, your soul kind of essentially, this is like... Basic I'm explaining it basically here kind of figures out you're dead and they go on to the afterlife. You can read about this in the rabbinical lit- literature known as the Talmud. Now, the scripture doesn't say this, but Jesus we know this. Jesus does not have to wait to resurrect Lazarus. He does not have to wait four days. Or he could have explained to them how hey I know this is a popular belief like after you die for three days you're not really dead dead till day four. He could have explained to them well, it's not true. But what does he do? He simply comes and meets him and resurrects them so that they could not doubt the power of Jesus. That Lazarus was not just dead, but he was dead dead. And he meets them where they are. Or in John chapter four, the story of the woman at the well, if you're familiar with that story, that the woman who had five marriages and then she was living with, the person she was living with at this point was not her husband. And Jesus is talking to her and he could have talked to her and said, well, here's why this is wrong and why you shouldn't be doing that. And here's why this isn't good. But what does he do? If you're familiar with that passage. He does none of those things. Instead, he meets her where she's at. He offers her grace and a chance to experience living water. There are so many examples of this throughout scripture where Jesus could correct wrong thinking, correct wrong action, do all of these things. But the first thing he always does is meets people where they are. And listen, if you know Jesus this morning, if you would say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, you need to know that this is not just what he did for you when he first met you, but this is what he continues to do for you. Right? Here's what we know, Christian or not, five years from now, you're going to think your current self is an idiot right? You always think your previous self is dumb, right? So what does this mean? Jesus, even today, is continuing to meet you where you are. And if you're here today, if you're watching online, and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, here's what you need to know, that he is inviting you where you are today, not where you think you need to be before he'll invite you in. He's inviting you. He wants to meet with you where you are today, right in the midst of your doubts, right in the midst of your messings up and your sin and your mistakes and your shame. He wants to meet with where you are today. So again, as a side note, following in the way of Jesus, the question for us then, especially if you are a follower of Jesus, this, who is someone God wants you to meet with at their level this week? Just really practically speaking, is that if this is what our Savior and our Messiah does, when he continually meets people where they are, who is someone that God might want you to meet with at their level this week, right? Who is it? For you. Who is the one person that you can love? And instead of, see, here's what we often do. We, we often put all this pressure on ourselves to know all the answers in case somebody asks me a question and to do all the things right so that, so that I can live my faith, and that it, but it's really intimidating and it's hard and I'm not always sure the best way to do it. Instead, here's the, here's, the, here's the playbook that you should follow, right? How can I meet someone where they are at this week? Or put it another way, how can I love someone where they are at this week? If I disagree with them politically, if I disagree with a lifestyle choice, even if my convictions are biblical and honoring God and theirs are wrong, instead of telling them all the ways that they need to change, how can I simply love them where they are at? Because that's what Jesus is doing here. That's what he's doing here, and that's what he does for us. Now, that being said, I want to apply this text as we get ready, to as we end here today. Here's Here's the problem for us this morning as we read this text, Right? The Sadducees, uh, they deny the resurrection. Uh, they have no idea what the, re- the God's kingdom is actually like, just like you and I might not. And so they want to know what happens when Jesus returns and everyone is supposedly resurrected and those that are followers of him invite into his kingdom. How is that going to work? Because again, here's what we often think. On heaven as it is on earth. Or in heaven as it is on earth, just different. Or in hell as it is on earth, just a little different different. And instead, what Jesus and what Scripture wants us to invite us into is this reality. Well, here's what we need to know, is that what we receive in God's kingdom is greater than anything we could bring into God's kingdom. That what he is offering us is not just a little bit better, but it is altogether different and altogether amazing. See, I don't know if this was was like this for you, when you kind of think about heaven and God's kingdom, what it's going to be like. When I was a kid, I remember when I was like five years old, we got a Super Nintendo, and it was awesome, and it was like brand new, and we played it all the time. And I remember thinking as like a six or seven year old, after having it for a year, when I die, I want them to put the Super Nintendo in my casket. Because for some reason, I figured if it's in your casket, it means it goes with you you know, wherever you go. Now, that's kind of funny, right? But, but even now, you know, 20 you know, something, 25-ish, whatever, however long it's been years later, even now we could be like, bro, Super Nintendo is lame. Like, have you seen this stuff they got now? It is so much better. And I think that's how we can do our own life. Like anything that you think is great, anything that you and I think, well, if as long as heaven has this, then it won't be boring and then it will be fine. We are missing out That is it is not like this, but better. It is altogether different. And so what Jesus does here, well, the question for us is, what does this mean for marriage? What Jesus does as a side note here seem to imply that marriage is not something that's going to happen in the kingdom of God. Now, if you are married, and if you're happily married, or if you had a spouse that you really, really love, this might be discouraging for you, right? Because you love your spouse, and you want to be with them, and how is this going to work? Uh, It's not, or maybe maybe you haven't been married. Maybe there's anything else in life, again, that you really enjoy, that you want to be like it is now, but just better. Like, I remember when I was a kid, kind of learning about heaven and following Jesus, and not being sure what I was going to like, thinking, I really hope there are sports in heaven. Because when I was in kindergarten, of course, I was going to be a star NFL quarterback. I mean, obviously. And so I just like, when I die, I don't know why I spent so much time thinking about dying when I was five. But, you know, whatever. I was like, when I die, I hope there's sports so that I can continue my NFL career in heaven. That's what I wanted to do. Because if not, it's going to be really boring. But yet, Scripture points to us that it is not like this, but better. It is altogether better. In fact, here's what it says in Revelation, in chapter 21, towards the end of Scripture. Again, John, who is one of Jesus' closest disciples, towards the end of his life, gets also a vision of what the kingdom of God is going to be like, in the best way possible, again, to explain in human terms something that you and I haven't experienced. I'm just going to read the first four verses. Here's what it says. It'll be on the screen. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, the recreation that God is going to do when Jesus returns. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. What he's saying there is not that there's not going to be some sort of water, but that the evil and suffering, which was often associated with water in the sea, is not going to happen. There's going to be no more pain. There's going to be no more suffering. He says, I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And then verse four, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. You see, what Scripture is pointing to, what Jesus wants us to understand, what John is explaining in Revelation 21, is that uh, what we see in God's kingdom is incomprehensible joy. But the problem for us is we often can't get past our own stuff. We like this. We want it to be like this, but just better. A couple of weeks ago, Christina, our family moved to a new house, and God, it was a whole God story. We were really excited about it. We're right near the church. It's amazing. And when we were getting ready to pack up last month, I told Finley, we got to take our TV down, and we're gonna, it's going to be down for a week, because I had someone coming over who's going to help me take it off the wall. And she was like, not very excited about that. Like a whole week, I can't watch a single show, right? But I'm like, Finley... We're moving to a much better place. And she's like, yeah, I mean, she had seen the house and she kind of was excited about it. But she couldn't get past the fact that she can't but watch her show, right? She's got to know what's going to happen to the, to the thing. Even though all the shows are the same when you're a kid. The good guy always wins. It's not realistic, right? But she still, like, she was really upset about it. And if you're if you're honest, it's like, Finley, would you rather move or would you rather stay here and put the TV back on the wall? I mean, she might say, well, I don't really understand what moving is going to be like. I don't really get the new house thing. So let's just put the TV back on the wall. And she would have missed it. And the implication of Revelation is pointing to is that even this, that even our relationship with someone that you don't even know in this world will be even deeper or more blessed or more full of joy than even marriage in this life. That God's uh, kingdom is incomprehensibly different and better than anything you and I can imagine. And so the question then for us is this, what is the catalyst behind all of this? What makes it so much better and so much different than our earthly existence here today? Well, what does, it's not typically what we typically think about. When we think of our earth-centric view of heaven, we kind of think of, again, God's kingdom is full of friends, family, a good job, and my, a job, and my dog that talks to me. Like That's kind of what we think, it is like I'll get my Super Nintendo is going to be there, and I'm going to be a quarterback, and I'm going to yeah, actually be able to do some of that stuff. But when you think about again your earth your, your earth-centric view of heaven, what's missing in this picture? What's missing in this picture is the source of life itself. What is actually going to make God's kingdom different when it is fully realized than it is right now? Again, verse three of, of chapter 21. It says this. John says this. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look. God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. You see, what makes God's kingdom so totally different than our current experience here on earth is that we get the source of joy itself in its fullness And there's no more pain, there's no more corruption, there's no more uh, missing out, there's none of that. We get unfettered access to God all the time. We can experience His grace at all the moments. And so, what's happening here is that Jesus, again, He's meeting with people where they are at. So, what what does He not do? He doesn't try to explain to the Sadducees heaven and the kingdom of God and why they're wrong. He doesn't do any of that. One, because they probably couldn't comprehend it, and two, because they wouldn't believe Him anyway. Instead, what does he do? He simply tells them what it is not there, marriage and giving in marriage. In other other words, it is not what you think life is gonna be like at all. You're asking me a question with a faulty premise, assuming that heaven is just like earth, but a little bit different. Instead, here's what we see. Again, the question for us this morning is how can God's kingdom be so good when life here can be so hard? Here's the answer to that. That the resurrection life is not a better version of this life it's unlike anything we can imagine. It is not Earth 2.0 that's just a little bit better. It is altogether different. The question is, how can you and I experience it? Well, we experience it through Jesus, who came to live the perfect life that we could not live, die in our place, confront these religious leaders, go to the cross knowing what's going to happen when he has conversations like this so that you and I can experience his Grace, that in the midst of us not having full understanding of the Bible, in the midst of us not living a perfect life, in the midst of us messing up and having doubts and having questions that he is inviting us in, that because you have it all figured out, because of his perfection and his grace and his mercy and his sacrifice and his resurrection. This is why in John chapter 14, when he's trying to explain to his disciples how he's gonna go away, and they're like, well, where are you gonna go? We don't understand. He tells them, what does he tell them? That I am going to prepare a place for you, That Jesus has prepared a place for us so that we might experience him. And so here's what I want to do as we end today. I want to do something a little bit different. It's not going to be that awkward, but I want to try something a little bit different here. Because here's what I know. God's kingdom is greater, again, than anything that you and I can imagine. It's not the same, but a little bit better. It's altogether different. That we experience his mercy, his love, perfect communion with God and with others. And we experience it not because of us, because of him. And here's what I know. If you're a follower of Jesus today, you probably have people in your life that you so desperately want to know that God loves them, that God cares for them, and that God has invited them in. And maybe, maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you have questions and you have doubts, and today's the day that you need to know without a doubt that God loves you, that He cares for you, and He wants to invite you in. So how are we going to do that? Well, I want to do something this morning, and I want to ask God but that he would allow us, that he would invite, bring more of these people into his kingdom who might not yet know him so that they can experience this resurrected life that is unlike anything we can ask or imagine. So here's what I want to do. I want to invite the band on the stage. And in the seat backs in front of you, there's these little cards. Go ahead and take it out. Don't fill it out yet, but I invite everyone to take it out. I've got mine here too. Um, what I want to do in a second is I want to invite you to write, not don't do it yet, but to write the name of somebody it can just be the first name. If you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, who you know could be a friend, um, it could be a family member who does not yet know Jesus, that you want to experience the resurrected life, the grace, and the power, and the freedom that Jesus offers them. Uh, I want you to think about them and maybe write their name down in a second. But well, maybe you're here today and that person is you. That you're the one. Say, God, I've messed up. I've blown it. But Jesus, if you love me, if you're willing to meet me where I am at, I want to experience your grace and your power. Maybe you should write your name down. Now in a second, what we're going to do is we're going to take these cards and we're going to hand them to someone next to us. And so if you're here this morning and the name that you need to write down is you, you can write down your middle name, you can write down a nickname. It doesn't matter what it is. I want to invite us to write these names down. And then I want us to take a second today, if you're here, we typically do a time of confession. We're going to do a time of prayer this morning instead. We're going to hand this to someone next to us and then we're just going to pray. Individually before the Lord, that they might experience the grace and the kingdom of God. So, would you take a second, write down a name? All of us can do it. If it's you, write down your name. You can hand it to someone else in a second. Um, that you that does not yet know God's power, God's grace, and God's mercy, and that you desperately want them to experience God's kingdom. And then we're going to swap our cards in a second. If you're sitting next to your spouse, you cannot give it to your spouse. We're going to swap cards in a second. And then we're just gonna individually, we're just gonna pray for these people. And we're gonna ask that God would bring them in, that they would experience God's love and that and then God's kindness.